Give it up for them. That's great. And Josie and Maddie, it is an easy thing to honor you two. Um, man, I am so excited to see what God will do. I saw them. They're over here. They're there. There you are. Where's you? Anyways, okay. Um, well, Dr. Church, my name's Rudy. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I get to be on staff here working specifically with our college ministry, the Salt Company. Uh, and this morning, maybe you kind of know where we're going based on everything that has been said so far, but we're going to be continuing our Scent series, as Rob said. We, we've been in this text, Matthew chapter 28. You can head there now, verses 18 through 20. Um, really since the week after Easter. We've seen that the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, means that we, yes, have been saved by Jesus, but also that we are now sent by Jesus. And we've been in this great commission for uh, kind of focusing on one part of it uh, at a time throughout uh, the last couple of weeks. And we got one more week of it next week, but we're going to look at a specific part of this. I'm going to give you one sentence, and then we're going to kind of commission this team. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. You hear what we've said so far, and you probably know precisely where we're going, but I want to focus you in on two words in the Great Commission this morning, and they are all nations. All nations. Two things you need to know about what Jesus is saying in this text, specifically in in relation to all nations, is that when you read the word all nations, I need you to think about something beyond nation states with geopolitical borders and trade agreements. The idea here is captured in the original language, which renders it pantate ethne, or to make disciples of every ethne, every ethnicity, every group of people. That broadens the scope beyond the UN into every different people group that exists on the planet. A group called the Joshua Project put together uh, kind of a list of these, and there are 17,433 identified people groups on the planet. 17,433 ethne that Jesus is talking about. If we're going to follow Jesus, doctor, we need to know what he's saying when he says it. He's not talking about geopolitics. He's talking about groups of people. One thing we need to understand on the front end of this, and the other is this. There is nothing in the Great Commission that would have come as a surprise to the disciples of Jesus when they heard him say it. There is no new information in these uh, concluding remarks of Jesus Christ. The crowd gathers, they worship, some doubt, but no one is shocked by what Jesus says. There's no categorically new information, including when he looks at the disciples and says, go to all nations. That's interesting because it might come off as surprising to us, or it didn't to them. No recorded stories of Jesus hopping on a plane and going overseas. That would have been crazy. Um, But no recorded stories of that happening. In fact, per the incredibly reliable recordings of his life, Jesus never traveled more than 200 miles away from his hometown. So where does all the nations come from? Where do we get that in the life of Jesus? The short answer, Doxa, is is everywhere, (laughs) all throughout it. So this morning, I've just got one sentence I'm going to start and end with, and it should be up on the screen here. Note takers, this is for you. Love you. I'm one of you. This is for you. 
Jesus' desire is for all people of all nations to know the good news that God saves sinners. My desire this morning is to so clearly prove this to you from the life of Jesus in the early church that you don't walk out of this room wondering if Jesus cared about the nations, but rather considering what God could do through you for the sake of all people in all nations coming to know this good news that God saves sinners. And and, and that being said, I'm well aware that there are people in this room who would not say that you're a Christian. Every week, you need to know that the people who are on this stage actually take that into account. And I want to honor the fact that you're here and you'd allow us to teach the Bible to you this morning. And if that is you, you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to let you know that I am so grateful that you're here, especially today. On a day where you could kind of write it off and say, this is only a message that is for people who follow Jesus. If we're going to look at this idea of all nations, I want you to know that Jesus' desire is for all people from all nations, including you, to know the good news that God saves sinners. So, Doxa, can I just remind all of us of this good news before we jump into the text? You see, you don't have to look around very long today to know that something is broken. There are things that are not right in the world. There is this general sense of brokenness and that it's not supposed to be this way. There is something off. The Bible tells the story of this brokenness that God established relationship with humanity, but humanity rebelled against God. Sin enters in through humanity's rebellion and shatters the relationship between us and God, us and others, us and creation. We had life with God from God and we chose death instead through our sin. Brokenness compounds, sin flourishes instead of humanity and the entirety of the world is marked by it. It was felt then and it's felt today all around us and within us. Just check the news. Brokenness abounds and sin is the cause. And in a way that sets him apart entirely from humanity, God does not give up on the humanity, the people that rebel and run away from him. He continues over and over to intersect with humanity, leading up to a culminating moment in which he sends his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that we could not live and die a death on the cross that we deserve to heal the wound of sin and fix what was broken between us and God. Jesus Christ would trade places with us who trust in him so that he who knew no sin would die on the cross so that we who had sin would receive his right standing and place before God so that as we trust in Jesus our sin would be taken from us and his life would be given to us he would die in our place and give us his life but he wouldn't stay dead we celebrated this a few weekends ago he dies and three days later he rises again so that we know doxa that one day we who trust in Jesus Christ will as well Sin is indiscriminate. It marks all people of all nations, every ethne, all 17,433 of them, and the 3.2 billion people within those groups have a need from God to be saved from the separation that their sin creates, just like you, just like me. And the good news about the good news is that God didn't just come for one group of people, Doxa. He didn't just come for a couple groups of people. He came for every single one of those ethne. He came for every single one of these people. This is the good news of the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, sin separated, but God saves all who come to him through Christ. 
So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the most loving thing I can do this morning is be crystal clear. You are dead in your sin, just like everyone else was at some point. But there is a God who cares enough to make a way for all people of all nations who trust in Jesus to have new life in him, including you. New life, eternal life, everlasting life, assurance of life, including you. So as I break this down this morning, I don't want you to think of Jesus coming for another person in just another place, but for you right here, right now. I want you to see the heart of Christ as he moves towards people, including you, to see the effort of the early church to move towards people and the church today, including you, to know that the God who saved sinners then is the same God who saves sinners now. And all this just to show that Jesus's desire is for all people from all nations to know this good news, that God is the only one who saves sinners and he sent Christ to do it. Now, that's simple to say, but I want to prove it to you by diving into the life of Jesus in the early church. We're going to be going on a journey through the text today, so I don't really have one text, but we're kind of going to be all over the place. I'll have a lot of it up on the screen for you. We're going to be in the Bible quite a bit, and that's all right, because if the Word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So there's so many examples of what we're talking about in the Old Testament, but for the sake of time, I cannot get to them. Suffice to say, as you read the Bible, the story of God that leads us to Jesus, you will not be able to help but understand that God's desire is for all people from all nations to know the good news of Jesus from the beginning of the book to the end of it because of the sheer quantity of times it is made clear throughout the text. But to lay that out for you today, I'm just going to start in the life of Jesus himself. I'm going to point to a few better known stories from the life of Jesus and how it is in these moments that God's desire for all people from all nations to come to know the good news of Jesus, that God saves sinners, is being laid out in it. So I'll take a story just from each of the Gospels. I don't want to just pick one and lean into it. I want you to see that this is across every account of the life of Jesus. So first, we'll start in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, there is a moment where Jesus is having a conversation with the Roman centurion. Now, that is absolutely wild if you know anything about Jerusalem in the first century because Rome was the oppressor of Israel at this time. This Savior, Jesus, in the minds of the people, in the imaginations, in, in, the, in the, like the spiritual imaginations of these people, they were thinking Jesus has come to set us free from our Roman captors. And Jesus instead in this instance is talking with the Roman captor. To take it a little bit further, the Roman man is asking Jesus for help. His servant is sick and he says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. And Jesus responds, am I to come and heal him? And this man looks at Jesus and says this incredible thing. Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers at my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This guy of the oppressive nation of Rome looks at a Jewish itinerant rabbi and asks for help. He looks at Jesus and he says, I know you have authority. I know you can do it. You say the word and it's done. Now here's what's interesting. The people around Jesus at the time would have looked at this as a moment for Jesus to bring retribution against the Roman people 
by looking at this man and saying, for all that Rome has done, you must know that your servant will not be healed. That's what the people around Jesus are expecting Jesus to do. They're expecting retaliation. They're they're expecting that in this moment. And instead, Jesus says this. This is wild. Um, Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness, for there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, Go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And this servant was healed that very moment. In front of everyone that he was around, Jesus looks at this man and says it in front of the crowd. He says, <coughs> You have more faith in me than the people who are supposed to have faith in me. So come. Know that your servant will be healed and know that many people who are not here will sit at the banquet seat in the kingdom. And then Jesus like long range heals the servant of the Roman centurion. It's a crazy picture in this verse. Many will come from the east and the the west and share at the banquet with your trading card historical picture figures. People from Rome will. People from all nations will sit at that table with the people that you look at as heroes in your history. He says, it won't just be you and it won't just be your people. It will be all people from all nations at that table. It is shocking that the man asks Jesus for help. It is shocking still that Jesus gives it, but it's in full alignment with the story of God. Jesus desires that all people from all nations would know the good news, including this Roman man. And in this instance, Jesus is proving it in word and in deed. Well, let's move on to to Mark, a story in Mark, Mark chapter five. We see Jesus cross the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter five, seemingly risking the lives of everyone on the boat with him, sailing through a brutal storm that Jesus himself stops by speaking to it to get to the region of the Gerasenes, which is a non-Jewish region, a, a nation, a group of people that he is in and that he is with. And he goes there, the story goes on to show us that he, he has come for one person who is oppressed by demons. And when he shows up, he sets that man free, it shocks the people, and they ask him to leave. And this man comes up to Jesus, and we read, he comes up to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you. Let me follow you. Let me be one of your followers. And we're reading the text thinking, all right, sweet, 13th disciple, like locked in, awesome. And Jesus looks at him and he says, no. In verse 19 of Mark 5, he says, go home to your own people. And report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And so that man went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the 10 city region, how much Jesus had done for them and they were all amazed. Pay attention to these words of Jesus. Go home to your own people because it's a different people group. It's a different ethne. This man is considered by many to be the first apostle sent out to the nations. He'd experienced the good news that God saves and delivers sinners and now uh, is participating in Jesus' desire for all people from all nations to know this good news by sharing that good news with his people and his nation. So Matthew, Mark, let's look at Luke. Luke chapter 19, verses 45 and 46. It's an infamous story about Jesus busting into the temple and flipping over the tables. We've got to do a little bit of work here before we get into it. Jesus is at the temple where the people would come to Jerusalem to worship God. 
The temple was broken down into different courts, kind of from the like innermost court to the outermost court. And these tables that Jesus flips over in this text are in the most outer court of the temple. The temple, the, it's the court of the Gentiles or essentially the court of anybody who wasn't Jewish, the court of the nations. This was the furthest court. It's the court where anybody of any ethnicity who feared God could come to worship. And it was here that these tables are set up, which Jesus flips over. These tables were run by money changers who would charge at a wild inflation and fee what was necessary for the people who had come to worship to get to worship. They were profiteering off the desire of these men and women to come and worship God. And with all the fullness and all the strength, Doc, so that I can say it, Jesus hates that. He hates it. Verse 45, he went into the temple and he began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Jesus goes in and throws them out. This story shows up over and over and over in the gospel accounts. One account shows that he flips tables. Another says that he fashioned a whip. And this one, he throws them out because Jesus is furious at the idea of people manipulating and profiteering off those who have come to worship God. In a really, there's so much we could get into here, but in a really important note, Verse 46 of this text is actually quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7, and everybody that is hearing it at the time would have known how that phrase, my house will be a house of prayer, ends. We might not, so let me just fill you in. Here's the full phrase that Jesus is quoting. My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. He's making it clear again and again, every group of people, every ethne, all nations, all of them, all of them, all of them, and all of them again. In the life of Jesus, we are seeing his life in action show that Jesus desires for all people from all nations to know the good news that God saves sinners. No one would be excluded, that all people would know. Matthew, Mark, Luke, how about about just one more from John? John chapter four, the story of the woman at the well. This woman at the well, this is an incredible story. I can't teach all of it. This woman at the well is a Samaritan woman. To be blunt, there was a great deal of racism executed between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. It stemmed back to 1721 BC where the Samaritans kind of found their origin when the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled off to Assyria and the Israelite men and women intermarried with the Assyrian men and women and had children who were essentially half Jewish and half Assyrian. That's where the, the Samaritan people come from. So much beef between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. And the story of the woman at the well is incredible because you have to pay attention to what the original audience would have been fixated on, that Jesus moves towards a Samaritan woman. The woman that Jesus interacts with, the first person that he tells that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, she has both Jewish and Assyrian blood running through her veins. In a culture fixated on monoethnicity, Jesus is doing something important in this moment when he speaks to her. He's looking at the Samaritan woman and he's saying, I didn't just come for half of you. I didn't just come for the Jewish blood in you. I came for the Syrian blood in you. I came for both because I desire that all people of all nations might know the good news that God saves sinners. Doxa, it is all up and down the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God desires that all people of all nations would come to know the good news of Jesus. 
So let's zoom out for just a moment. Imagine for a second that you are first century man or woman as a disciple of Jesus. You've followed Jesus. You've seen these interactions with Jesus. You've been marked by these moments across the story of Jesus. Then Jesus dies like he said he would. He rises again like he said he would. What do you think the final words, the final charge, what do you think is something you'd expect him to say? You would absolutely expect him to say something along the lines of make disciples of all nations because throughout his life, Jesus was living in a manner that pointed to that being the present and future reality of his people. And it would be the future reality of his people. We can turn from now the life of Jesus to the early life of the church. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, there's this hinge between the life of Jesus and the life of the church where Luke writes and he says, I wrote the first narrative to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Don't miss that word began. Jesus began the work of seeing all people from all nations come to know the good news that God saves sinners. And if he began it, who continues it? Us. (laughs) It's the church. It's actually the unfinished work of the church is to align ourselves with this desire of Jesus Christ. And he actually articulates that just a couple verses later in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As Jesus commissions out and sends his disciples, he makes it clear again that God desires for all people of all nations to know this good news of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's not long after, it is just shortly after that we actually see this happen in the very first sermon of the church age preached by Peter. We see it happen just before in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read a longer section. I want you to see this. In Acts 2, the Spirit comes on the disciples, and they're literally witnesses to Jerusalem and to all people. They they are literally witnesses in Jerusalem to all people. They are empowered by the Spirit of God to be witnesses of this good news. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house as they were staying, and they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues or different languages as the Spirit enabled them. And now they were, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't these people speaking Galileans? How is it that we can understand them in our own language? And just, li- li- just look at this. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phygeria, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the b- parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. God supernaturally speaks to the disciples in such a way that 15 different people groups hear the gospel in their own language. They hear the miraculous acts of God. Yet another proof that God desires for all people from all nations to know this good news of Jesus Christ. This work continues. 3,000 are baptized on that day and they build a community that is the first church. 
In Acts chapter 7, we see the first martyr, Stephen, be murdered at the hands actually of Saul. And then in Acts chapter 8, the people scatter into, from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the surrounding nations. It's interesting what was intended, this martyrdom of Stephen, to stop the desire of God that all people would, all nations would know the good news of Jesus, only serves to spread it further. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel gets to Samaria, and then we see it move on to Ethiopia through an incredible story. In Acts 10, it gets to Cornelius of the Italian regiment. In Acts 11, we see it get to Antioch, which would be the church that Paul and his team would be sent on three missionary journeys to plant churches across Asia Minor from. It is incredible that you see the movement of the gospel just skyrocket from the beginning of the church. They took seriously the desire that they understood from their, uh, their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, their Savior, Jesus. As they were disciples of him, they looked at him and said, you desire that all people from all nations would know this good news. Our desire will align with yours. Just so this isn't romanticized, um, any time Paul and his team, or really anybody in the account of the local church, went to plant a church or preach the gospel, almost one thing was always guaranteed. They suffered. They were mocked, beaten, whipped, stoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked, bitten by poisonous snakes. There were multiple attempts on their life. Just listen to this account from Acts chapter 20, where the elders of the church at Ephesus are basically begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, well, I am now on my way to Jerusalem. Compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. So let's recap this picture of life. The Spirit's leading me. I've got no idea what's going to happen, except I'm going to suffer. Welcome to missional church planting. <laughs> cool. This has got to beg the question within us, Why? Like, Paul, why would you do that? Why keep going? Well, this phrase ends one verse later, verse 24. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Just like in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they have been empowered to testify to the gospel. Paul's saying we're still empowered to testify to the gospel. This is the ministry that he has received, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. But he narrows that down in Romans chapter 15. I told you we'd be all over the text. He gives a specific picture of this in Romans chapter 15, what, what, how he saw this ministry in his mind. Romans 15, verse 19, he says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Ilkirium. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. So what is Paul's ministry? It's to testify to the gospel of grace by preaching where Christ has not been named. He seems to be obsessed with going to where Christ has not been named. Why? Because Paul's a disciple of Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus. He emulates both the life and the lifestyle of Jesus, which means that if Jesus has a desire to see all people from all nations know the good news that God saves sinners, so would Paul. So Paul's response in the work of the early church was this. We've got to get where the gospel isn't. 
Gospel came to us on its way to someone else. Their slogan could have been summed up in three words, no place left. And that's why Paul says one of the craziest things, he's done a lot of stuff, but like this is one of the craziest things of Romans 15. He says it right after this, Romans 15, 23 and 24. He said, this man's breathing, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions. Does this guy not know that like we can read the other letters that he's writing? Like clearly not, but like, Corinth, like there's a lot of work to do in Corinth, right? Like Corinth is jacked up. Galatia, like they're like basically have abandoned the gospel and are preaching another one. Uh, Colossae, like they're dealing with false teachers left and, and right. What are you talking about that there's no work to do here? How can Paul say this? He actually gives it away. I've strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. Paul's writing to a people that he hasn't been with, the Roman church yet, and he's like, I can't wait to like pit stop at you guys while I go to a place that the gospel isn't, which is Spain. I need to go further west. You see, Paul would have looked at these churches and their problems, and he would have said, yes, they have problems. And he's not saying that there's not any work to be done there anymore. He's not saying that there's not elders and that there's not men and women who lead in those churches. And he's not saying, like, y'all can just chill and just, like, not actually share the gospel anymore and not do any ministry on the ground in your city. He's not saying that. There's always more of a mess in the nursery than in the cemetery. And these young churches are trying to figure out how to be potty trained, but they're alive, and the gospel's at work in them and in their cities through them. So Paul looks for a place where the gospel isn't like Spain. Why? Because he knows that Jesus' desire is for all people from all nations to know the good news that God saves sinners. Christian, as those who are also disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves if we share in this same desire with him. It's a good time now to turn from the life of Jesus and the story of the early church to the condition of the world today. Rob shared this last week if you were here, but there are 3.2 billion people left who God desires to know the good news of Jesus. Of those 17,433 ethnic, it's projected that north of 7,000 of those people groups do not have access to the gospel. And generally, when someone talks about that, they, they use, you have a tendency to use one of two words or, or the, both of these words together, and it's unreached and unengaged. So when we talk about unreached, it's a category of a place where less than 2% of the population are Christian. So when you do some work around this, you begin to understand that these places exist not so far away from us. Uh, a decade ago, when I was in Florida, uh, we supported a missionary who's planting churches in Maine. Um, and at that point in time, statistically, Maine was a state that was classified as unreached because less than 2% of the populace in Maine was Christian. Multiple people have thrown out statistics that if you looked at the universities in America that had 10,000 or more students, or roughly 400 of them, and treated the universities of 10,000 or more students as a collective people group, then you would technically have an unreached people group. Hello, we exist and we're here with the salt company at UW-Madison because UW-Madison would need to have more than 1,000 Christian students to consider being reached. Depending on who you asked, UW would either be right on the edge or right under. Less than 2% is categorized as unreached because while they are presently unreached, the reality is that they could be. Maine could be reached 
because there was a team there with Dan that had gone there to plant churches. UW can be reached because there's a lot of students across a lot of organizations that are leveraging these short strategic years on campus to share the gospel and make disciples of other students on campus. It could be reached. The possibility of it exists. So they're categorized as unreached because there's still potential. But then there's places that are considered unengaged. And an unengaged place is one in which there is no discernible implementation of effort being made to plant churches or share the gospel that God saves sinners at all. None. There's no work being done. That, that should weigh on us as we sit in a room that's air-conditioned with comfortable chairs. That there's a lot of places and a lot of people that don't just fall into unreached that don't just fall into living on your street or going to your school or your workplace, but have literally no one that can stand the gap presently between them and the gospel being shared with them. Now, it's true that in places and people from these places, God does some incredible things to reach those who are lost. Um, when I was in Florida, there was a woman from a country that was both a uh, unreached and unengaged. We worked really heavily with the refugee populations in our city. Uh, I'll not share where she's from because this is being live streamed, but she came into our church office uh, one day. She'd just come to America not very long before, and she was asking if she could talk with one of the people that worked at the church. So uh, in broken English, she sat down with myself, and she sat down with our pastor, Zach, uh, who's a pastor for prayer and internationals at our church, and she kind of shared some of her, her story and her life. And then we asked her, like, okay, so what, that's great to know. Like, what, what would you like to talk about? You, you seemed really flustered when you came in. And she looked at us and she said, I had a dream last night where a man in white handed me a copy of the Injil, which is the Islamic word for the gospel, um, or the, in, in like the religion of Islam, the Injil is the gospel. I had a dream last night where a man handed me a copy of the Injil and said, go to the church down the road and they'll tell you who I am. And this woman looked at us and she said, can you tell me who that man is? And we said, yeah, <laughs> we can. And she put her faith in Jesus Christ and I could go into so much throughout the story. But she ends up Skyping her family back home and sharing the gospel with them. And some of the people in this family in an unreached, unengaged place put their trust and their, their hope in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. All this to say Jesus can do more than we ask, hope, think, or imagine, but that does not abdicate the responsibility of the church, the responsibility that God has given the church to go to all nations. I praise God for stories like that, and I'm spurred on by stories like that, but I want you to pay attention that in the midst of stories like that, God saved that one person, and then she went and shared the gospel with her family. And it is the role of the God, uh, of the church, because God still desires for all people from all nations to know the good news of Jesus. You can consider the world and just uh, kind of land internally and say, that is too much. <laughs> it's too large. I'm one person, and that's 3.2 billion and 7,000 people group. So let me just, again, bring it down to a person. I'll call him, I'll call him Z. On a summer trip several years ago in Southeast Asia, my friends and I met Z, I think, while we were playing soccer. 
Over the next couple of weeks, we started hanging out with Zine more and more and started having conversations about Jesus with him. We'd often hang out with our friends and have, uh, there was this one shop that we really liked the watermelon juice from. So we'd get, we'd go there and we'd play cards out front. We'd tell our friends that we were there that were on that campus and they'd come through and we'd talk with them about life and we'd start to share the gospel with them. And um, a lot of them said no. (laughs) A lot of them said no. Um, But we asked, uh, there was one time where it was just us and Z and we asked them, uh, if he'd like to hear the gospel again, we shared it with him, and we asked him if he'd like to become a Christian, and he said yes. Now, I cannot tell you like how shocking that was to, to us. It had only been a couple of weeks, and many of our friends had said no. So when he said yes, my friend Brandon and I looked at each other and like asked him again, and then we asked him again, and then we asked him like again, and then we translated, uh, we translated uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 into his language and like had him read it and said like, do you believe that? Like we're like basically, we're like trying to talk this dude like out of being at this point because we're just like, we gotta, we, I, I can't risk that, that I'm unsure, I can't can't risk that you don't know what we're talking about. And he looked at me in this moment and he said, he started to share this story that he hadn't told us about his grandmother and the Bible on her mantle. And how he'd never really spent any time with her, but she had told him that she prayed for him and for his family. And I'll never forget when Brandon looked at Z and said, your grandmother's prayers are being answered right now. We got to be a part of our friend being saved from his sin and deciding to surrender and put his trust in Jesus. I think about Z a lot. That's just one story. It's just one person. But I think about him often. And when I do, this text from Revelation 7 uh, that just comes to mind where we have a glimpse of what eternity with God will be like, where it's recorded by John that there was a vast multitude in the heavens from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a long voice, loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. You know who's going to be there with me singing that song in eternity? Z is. Z is. Now look, I'm an ambitious fellow, but I don't have the hubris to tell you that I think I'll lead 3.2 billion people to repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. I don't think you as an individual do either, but I've got great news. God has never asked any single person to do it. He's given that mission to his church to the collection of disciples of Jesus, to emulate the desires of Jesus. So we have to ask the questions about how we will orient our lives around this desire of Jesus to make disciples of all nations because he desires for people of all nations to know the good news that God saves sinners, which pulls us from the life of Jesus to the early church, to the condition of the world, to my frenzy, to this room this morning. To you, Doxa. To you, Christian. How could God do something through you for you to play a part in all people and all nations coming to know the good news that God saves sinners? What part could you play? It's not that he doesn't have a part for you to play. It's that you actually need to now answer the question, what could God do through me? I think there's three things. I'm going to lay these out and I'll take my seat. Pray, give, and go. So first, prayer. Doxa, I hope that you pray incredibly uncomfortable prayers. Prayers that stretch your faith. I think about how Dawson Trotman would often ask people, what's the biggest thing you've asked God for this week? He was writing once and he explained it. He said, do you know why I often ask Christians what's the biggest thing you've asked God for this week? 
I remind them that they are going to God, the Father and the maker of the universe, the one who holds the words in his hands. What did you ask God for? Did you ask for peanuts, toys, or trinkets, or did you ask for continents? I want to tell you it's tragic, the little itsy-bitsy things that we ask of our almighty God. Sure, nothing is too small, but also nothing is too big. So let's ask, learn to ask from our big God some of the big things he talks about. I love that quote. Doc said, nothing is too small, but also nothing is too big. I hope you don't ask for peanuts, toys, and trinkets, but continents for nations. Like who, who would put their trust in Jesus if every prayer that you prayed this last week was answered yes by God? Like parents, I want to challenge you to pray for your kids to be sent to nations where the gospel is not known. Students, I hope to God you leverage the rest of your lives for this. Retirees, what what could this new phase of your life look like in relation to the nations? Whatever stage of life that you are in, you actually have this beautiful opportunity and invitation from God to pray. So I want to invite you to pray for the nations. To pray and to give. My friend John oversees about 70 missionaries, and he likes to say that you're either a giver or you're a goer. Docs, I'm so encouraged by how generous our church is. You, you have given of your time, talent, and treasure over and over to send the Japan team. Docs, uh, part of the reason that we get to send students this summer, you need to know, is, is through the generosity that you have shown. As you give generously to Doxa, you are funding missions work in unreached and unengaged places. Here is my ask. So as I was praying for you, this came to mind. Please don't grow weary in doing good. Please don't grow weary in doing good. If you're not going, my invitation would absolutely be for you to pray and would absolutely be for you to financially support those who are. There's an incredible book called Gospel Patrons that tells the story of men and women who were missionaries and how they were able to do what they did because of groups of men and women who were their gospel patrons, sacrificially, generously supporting the mission's work of those who translated the Bible into English, oversaw global missions movements, and wrote hymns that we still see today. Doxa, the woman who gives sacrificially is the giver that Jesus honors in the gospel. And my invitation is for you to continue to be gospel patrons as we send by God's grace more and more and more people to the nations across the city, across the states, and across the seas. Speaking of, that is my final charge, which is for you to go. Um, Angelica is in our connection group. We have an awesome connection group. Um, was talking about this on Wednesday. She's talking about how um, there is this idea of all authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And then he says, go. And somehow we have this picture in our minds that we separate Jesus having all authority from us like considering whether we should or shouldn't go. We go because the one who has all authority told us to go. She'd be preaching in the connection group. It was great. Um, we, we are under that authority. It's not a question. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. We go. And so for some of you, you'll go across the street. You'll go to Madison while you live in Madison. Your ethne is where you are. Your street may be unreached, but God is determined to put you there so that the gospel that came to you might come to someone else on your street. For others of you, you're going across state lines, and as the kindness of God has been with you here in Madison, it is waiting for you in Ann Arbor, but so too is the mission of God. For you to make disciples of the ethne that you will be around there. 
For others of you, as we continue uh, by grace to plant other churches, it'll be in going to another city and reaching the nations there. But in a room this size, I am shamelessly been praying this week that God would raise up some of you to be sent to the nations. That some of you might raise your hand and consider joining the team that's landed in Japan. They're praying for older people to go. That some of you would say, I don't know where, but I know that I need to seriously consider going. That some of you would go for a season. Others of you would go for the rest of your life. Some of you have already raised your hand and are uh, significantly invested in overseas work. Some of you have put it off over and over and over, but it just keeps coming back. And my prayer is that God would call men and women and families out of Doxa Church to go. If you're new to church, that might seem really weird because we like people to come and to stay. And I do want you to stay until you have to go. For the sake of people like my friend Z, I desperately want you to go. So pray, give, and go. Align your desires with the one that you're a disciple of, Jesus, who desires that all people from all nations might know the good news that God saves sinners. Doxa Church, you've got to answer this question. What could God do through you? I want to give you a picture of something that he is doing through you and invite actually our overseas team that's going to Southeast Asia to come up to the front here. We're going to do kind of what we have done uh, the last few weeks when we've been sending and commissioning. Um, we want to invite you actually, Doxa, to come up as you have. Um, if you know some of the men and women up here to pray for them. If not, we'd invite you to sit in your seat and pray for them as they spend the next two months. They'll head out this week and spend the next two months overseas. We want to give you the chance to pray. Many of you have actually uh, given so that they can go, and they are going from us. They're going to Southeast Asia. So I want to invite you to be a part of that. This is a picture of us going, Doxa. Might God continue to do more and more and more. So as we sing this song, I want to invite you to come up and pray or to sit in your seat and pray. But God, I ask that you, in this moment right now, that we would experience an Acts 13 moment as you have called these men and women to go this summer that, that members of the church would come and lay hands on them and pray and send them out. As you have sent them out, God, we are going. So we ask that you would strengthen them, meet every need. God, let it be a picture to us here who are staying back to spur us to move towards the nations that you've put us around to answer that question, what could you could do through us? Help us. It's in your name. Amen.